everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord, the comics news and reviews podcast that's brought to you by the fine folks at Seekworth.org, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comics commentary. Buy their books, read their articles. I am Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I am Sean Edry, but in the Munich circus I was known as the amazing Nightcrawler. I assume that's Nightcrawler. It is Nightcrawler. Uh, and while we're mentioning Seekworth, we should mention that the Shemix comics documentary about the history of women in comic books... Finally came out. We've mentioned it last week, mm-hmm. and so it's damn time. Yeah, yeah. I've been waiting a long time for it. If you're a Kickstarter supporter like me, you got your uh, your download code by now. And if you're not, well, you should check out the DVD when it's coming out. Soon. Absolutely. So that's the introduction. We'll go yeah. in straight to the hard bits. Lots of casting news this. Uh, yeah, last lots two of weeks. comics news, which isn't actually about comics, which always boils my blood. Well, it's tangentially comics related, yeah, and it's fine. So let's let's really get into it because there were actually quite a few interesting announcements regarding casting. I think the the one that made the biggest splash was uh, the news of the Suicide Squad movie. First of all, that there is Suicide well, Squad. Well, we movie. knew there would be a Suicide Squad. Did we? They, they mentioned it in their big declaration. It was on the plan. Ago. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't pay too much attention to it at the time, but so the Suicide Squad movie is happening, and uh, just to sort of briefly explain what the Suicide Squad is. Uh, this is a book that started, I think, in the late 80s. 80s. Yeah, John Astrander. Uh, John Astrander, and uh, a rotating cast of artists, if I remember. And the premise, which was surprisingly uh, uh, progressive for DC at the time, was that it was a squad of villains who had been arrested and imprisoned, and were being released to fulfill all of these very dangerous... Suicide missions. Suicide sort of black ops missions. Uh, for Amanda Waller, who is known as the Wall and is actually one of my favorite DC characters. Uh, and as the series progresses, obviously you have a rotating cast. Some people die. Some people uh, escape. What, one of the big selling points was that because they were all B-list, C-list uh, villains, mm-hmm. the writer could kill them off if he wanted to. And yeah. if I remember correctly, basically every arc somebody died. Or I don't know if it was every arc, but I mean, Ostrander got a lot of mileage out of the the idea that suddenly there were high stakes, right? Suddenly you had a book in which the characters who, for all that they were villains, you could still sort of sympathize with them because they were prisoners. And then you never knew what would happen. Uh, it was a, it was a very good book. I'm not, I'm not following the new, uh, version because... No, it's, because it's DC's extreme! Yeah, it's a bit much. I saw some of the preview Dark art. Suicide Squad. Yeah. And so you don't, you don't need to go that far. But the movie, uh, uh, Warner Brothers announced casting for the film, and the list that we have at the moment is Will Smith as Deadshot. Interesting choice. That's weird. It not, I mean. Because Will, A, Will Smith, as part of an ensemble cast when he's not the center stage. Yeah. That's not happened since Independence Day, I think. And even then, he was, like, one of the main Yeah, characters. Will Smith is always the biggest name in whatever movie he is. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a terrible, horrible movie. See, After, after Earth. After Earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now he's going to be part of an ensemble. And he's, because... And as Deadshot, no less. Yeah. Like, it's not, not only is he in an ensemble, he's in an ensemble as a villain. Which is an interesting choice. I can't think of many villainous roles that he's played over the years. No. So, um, there's that. Uh, whether he'll succeed or not as um, Deadshot? Possibly. I mean, this is Floyd Lawton, right? He is yeah. one of the main uh, the mainstays of the Suicide Squad. Yeah, but one of the big points about Floyd Lawton is that he's very cynical and a bit down-to-earth and rough. And Will Smith is all about, you know, 
the blow up charisma. Yeah. Very brash, very yeah, confident. It's, It'll so be it's interesting just, to see if he can do it. If he can do it, fine. Yeah. But so, Jared Leto okay. is the Joker. Now, here is brilliant casting. That's a good choice. I hadn't even thought of it at the time, but as soon as they announced it, I'm like, you know, with Heath Ledger was a surprise. If Jared Leto pulls it off, it won't be a surprise because I think he can do it. Yeah. Margot Robbie is Harley Quinn. She was in Wolf of Wall Street, right? Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she's she okay. was okay there, but she didn't have a lot, a lot to do other yeah. than look pretty. The role of Harley Quinn requires something special. Not everyone can pull it off. I think the writing of Harley Quinn requires something special. That's more of a writer's trick to make sure that her madness doesn't become annoying slash. Yeah, it also depends though whether or not the Joker is in the mix or not. Which well, he tough. is. Yeah, in this particular film, he is. But usually, when you see Harley Quinn in the context of the Suicide Squad, it's without the Joker. Well, in in the original series, he wasn't part of the team or anything. Yeah. There was the recent directed DVD Assault on Arkham yes. movie, which was horrible. It if was. You're asking me. It really was. The Joker was the bad guy there, so maybe he was also the best thing about the movie. So maybe that's what they're playing at because all of these B-list names, we need a big, you know iconic name mm-hmm. and they can't use Batman because Ben Affleck is tied up in their Batman v Superman thing <laughs> so they say well this movie has the Joker sure. which is a, gi- then, a giant iconic and name and when you think about it it wasn't that the impetus of creating the Suicide Squad in the first place now you have a bunch of B-listers who nobody really cares about they're not tied up in other events yeah but now you know we'll survive because they're not gonna kill off Will Smith you never know um, it could, I mean this is that's what the Suicide Squad is Tom Hardy is Rick Flagg and not Bane. Okay, Rick, Tom Hardy as Rick Flag, uh, the hard military man, is a good choice. I guess. But it's weird because we just saw him in yeah. a DC movie as a bad guy. I mean, to be completely fair, Tom Hardy does have the kind of flexibility that would allow him to play two roles in quote-unquote the same universe very differently. So um, I can accept him as Rick Flag, but it is weird that they didn't cast him as Bane. In the Suicide Squad. That just seems like the sort of thing that would be obvious. But the big contentious issue here, uh, that I'm having at least, is that the role of Amanda Waller hasn't been cast. And the person at the top of the list is Oprah Winfrey. I think that's a gag. She's not... Why would she go for it? John Ostrander had an interview with Comic Book Resources in which he said, Sure, Oprah was at the top of my list. (laughs) Well, but uh, DC Entertainment, I don't think, actually asked John Ostrander <laughs> who to cast. Oprah Winfrey is Oprah big. Winfrey? Oprah Winfrey is... You get a, su- a suicide mission, and you get a suicide mission, and you get a suicide Oprah mission. Oprah Winfrey is bigger than the movie. She's bigger than yes. DC Entertainment. She's yes. a media empire on her own. Why? A, why would she play in a movie like that? B, why, why would, would she, she play in The Color Purple? Why would she play on Desperate Housewives? Well, I mean, you know... I, she wasn't Desperate Housewives. She wasn't Desperate Housewives. See, in The Color Purple, <laughs> I, I see her point because that was a message movie that she could support. Okay, fair enough. I, I, don't, I don't see her playing a government black op uh, squad leader but because that's so against the image that she created to herself. On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, it's Amanda Waller. She's one of the most powerful African-American women in the DCU. Uh, but we both agree, there already is a perfect actress for Amanda Waller. CCH Pounder! Yeah, she voiced her in the JLU, and she Flawless. Looks, Flawless A, the voicing was false. B, the character actually looks like CCH Pounder. Yeah. I mean, I, that just seems... Okay, I'm willing to assume that if CCH Pounder wasn't their first pick, it's because she's busy with something. That's the only justification I can think of that they didn't go to her with this. And, I mean, some of the other names that they brought up, Viola Davis, Octavia Spencer, 
these are actresses who would be more credible in the role than Oprah Winfrey for the simple reason that if you are sitting in the movie theater and Oprah comes on as Amanda Waller, cue Peggy Bundy on the couch with the bonbons, right? It's like, Oprah's on! So I don't... I mean, she's one of those people who whose... Her reputation precedes her too much. Too much. It would break the film. So I hope it's not... Like, all due respect to Oprah... If it's a comedy movie. Even that. If it's a very black comedy... Even Maybe. then, because you would look at her and you would say, it's Oprah. It's And this is Amanda Waller. And DC has made some questionable choices when it comes to casting different versions of Amanda Waller. So I would like for them to get In it In general, right DC once. casting is a lot more name actors rather than the Marvel method of, let's pick the unknown. Be- yeah. I, I don't think it's because, you know, because we talked before, Marvel had a lot of good choice when it comes to casting. Yeah. But let's admit it. The, the one reason they pick unknowns is because they're cheap. And Marvel like to True. sign up, you know, the well, smallest bit actors they can find to pay them. It depends. Scale. It depends on who. Like, for example, I mean, the obvious counterpoint to that being Robert Downey Jr., who yeah, to but this day Robert is tossing them an arm and a leg. With but today, film. but not when they picked him. When they picked him, it was like, Robert Downey Jr., would you play in this movie for a bag of bonbons? And he's like, yes. <laughs> and yet he was the highest paid Marvel actor even then. Yeah. So, well, good luck, uh, Warner Brothers. I actually do have some interest in this film now because of the casting. Because, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the Ostrander run of Suicide Squad very much. The concept is one that always works. It's the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. It's the Dirty Dozen. It Why is, not? Box it, crooks. Let's try it. More casting news from the other side of the country. Uh, so we have now the... Netflix, I'm calling it the Defenders Project. This is basically sort of a smaller scale version of what happened with the cinematic universe, which is Netflix intends to launch four solo superhero series and then have the protagonists combine at the end for a fifth series called the Defenders. Now, the members of these uh, uh, series, sorry, the members of the Defenders, wow, that's a mouthful, uh, have already been announced. So we know that it's Daredevil, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Jessica Jones from Brian Bendis' uh, Alien in other use, In other words, it's not the Defenders. It's Marvel Knights. Pretty much. If they call it the Defenders, much. it's Marvel Knights. My guess is that they picked the name Defenders for trademark reasons, copyright reasons, because they're not the Defenders. I mean, the Defenders traditionally have been who? Silver Surfer, the Hulk, Doctor Strange, Strange, and Namor. Namor yeah. right? And both Namor and Silver Surfer are tied up at Fox. Fox? Yeah, I think it's Fox. Yeah. Well, no. Sony, the Fantastic Four? Oh, no. Namor belongs, I think, to Universal. No, he's part of the Fantastic Four deal. No. No, 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 no. Sony doesn't own Namor. Because I remember that Namor is, like, way off outside the the entire uh, sphere. I'm pretty sure it's Universal. Okay. Anyway, so um, for a significant amount of time, the... Most of the casting announcements for these Netflix series were centered on, on Daredevil because Daredevil is the first one that's going to be aired. We already know that it's Charlie Cox. We know that Rosario Dawson is going to be in it. Uh, Vince D'Onofrio as the Kingpin, which is brilliant. But uh, Marvel have now announced the actors for the leading roles in Alias... Uh, sorry, not Alias, but AKA rather AKA Jessica, Jessica Jones. Jones. Alias is taken. Thank you very much, J.J. Abrams. Uh, and so they have cast Kristen Ritter. As Jessica Jones. Kristen Ritter is probably best known for her supporting role in Veronica Mars as Gia Goodman and uh, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. That's a fine choice. 
It is a fine choice because she manages to really have this sort of uh, central um, role. She manages to really have this sort of central role as a super bitchy character. And based on that, like when I think of Jessica Jones at the beginning of Alias, right, that private investigator who curses up a storm and she's very sarcastic and she's very cynical, I can see Kristen Ritter pulling, up, pulling it off. Their choice for Luke Cage was a little more unorthodox because so many names were thrown in. Like, uh, uh, I think the old Spice guy was the most popular choice. People really wanted him well, he's as Luke Cage. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, no? Wait, no, oh. I'm sorry. That's Terry Crews. I'm sorry. Who would have also I th- I been... I thought that Terry Crews would be a great Luke Cage. Terry Crews would have been an amazing Luke Cage, but they ended up going with Mike Coulter. Now, Mike Coulter, I know him best as Lamont Bishop from The Good Wife. Good actor. The... The interesting thing, like, when you look at the difference, for example, between Terry Crews and Mike Holder, I think the issue is Terry Crews could have made it funny. Yeah. Like, he would have been a comedic choice. 19, 1970s look. Exactly. Sweet Christmas. When, when you that. look at him on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he's hysterically funny because he's this huge, you know, hulking guy with these massive mu- uh, muscles. muscles. But he's so funny. Yeah. And But Mike Coulter, for example, in, in The Good Wife, he's very, very serious. He's very, you know, straightforward. He's this drug kingpin. He's very threatening aura. So it does seem to suggest that they're taking Luke Cage not in the campy direction of the tiara and the yellow shirt, but rather something that might be more similar well, to... Well, the tiara and yellow shirt, it's it's more of a previous generation interpretation. Yeah. He, he wasn't like that. But something like that. Yeah, but he's not like that for a long, long time. Right. So I think they are taking him in sort of a more serious direction, which is an interesting choice. I am curious as to whether Jessica Jones and and Luke Luke Cage Cage are involved in this continuity. It's a crossover. I can't wait for these Netflix shows, I'm telling you. It's so interesting to see. I mean, this is not going to be Agents of of S.H.I.E.L.D. What's wrong with Agent of Atlas? Why are you saying Agent of Atlas? Uh, no, because I'm trying to picture, like, what would Agents of Atlas look like? A live action, my God. A sci-fi miniseries with a guy in an ape suit and a guy in a robot suit. We should be so lucky. With a cardboard on, on his head. Oh, my God. Uh, so, uh, the only person who hasn't been cast at this point is Danny Rand, Iron Fist. Hmm. A lot of interesting possibilities. We'll see where they go with that. So, f- three of the four Defenders have been cast. More TV news. Oh. Not... Not very encouraging news. So, Krypton. Krypton? I need a minute here. <laughs> Krypton okay. exists. Krypton, the TV exists. series. Krypton, the TV series, is coming to sci-fi. Uh, written by David Goyer. This is the guy who wrote Man of Steel. This is a guy who, in front of a live audience called She-Hulk, a giant green porn star who was created so that Hulk could have someone to screw around with. I don't get it. I You look at this man's output. I mean, I, I, I looked up his IMDb uh, list just to, for general information. It's one failure after another. Da Vinci's Demons, Jumper, Flash Forward, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. And the fact that Siffy or Sci-Fi or whatever they call themselves these days, is putting him in charge of a show yet again just tells me that they have gone completely brain dead. Like all of those shark well, and octopus movies well, that just he's a killed. big name because he was involved with the Nolans and with the Blade movies. And he was part of the Dark uh, Dark City, I think, writing team. And That was that, a long time yeah, ago. That, and in the words was, of Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? You know? I, I, I don't like Goyer either. He's sort of a caricature of those 
we should make everything dark and edgy and he realistic. was on Man of Steel. Yeah. You know, he's partly responsible for the ridiculously like blue and gray and sad brain nonsense that we got in Man of Steel. And now he's doing Krypton. Which uh, uh, you mentioned. Comics Alliance summed it up perfectly. Yeah. Krypton announced, title scene uh, spoils the ending. Yeah, the logo spoils the ending, it's a planet exploding. Uh, there is nothing that can interest me in this show. I, I can't see any. What's this preoccupation with prequels to established creations whose origins are the last, least interesting thing about them? Krypton is dead. That's, it's important to the Superman myth. Yeah. That it's. Gone. Has there ever been a Krypton story that people really went for? I don't know. There for were the a man lot. who had everything, but that wasn't really Krypton? There, there were a lot of Krypton stories in the pre-crisis era, but sure. th- these have all been pretty much forgotten, you know? Unless you're a huge Superman nerd, you're not going to read them, you're not, you're not going to care about them. Even Smallville didn't go back to Krypton. I don't... I, I just don't get it. Like, and, and they've been describing it as, you know, oh, it's it's going to concern Superman's grandfather and set up the saga of Superman and it's going to be like Game of Thrones with all these political things. It's like, it's Krypton. None of it... Ma- it's like, it is the definition of a shaggy dog story because... The planet's dead. The one thing everybody knows, everybody, no matter if you read comics, if you don't read comics, if you've never heard of Superman, you know that Krypton will explode. None of it matters. And the Superman would be a baby when it happens. And it, and really, I mean, you're talking about the fascination with prequels. Is Gotham doing so well that all of a sudden everybody is... is... Yes. Wait, there's a Supergirl series announced, right? Right. And if I remember my Superman myth correctly, Kara is actually a bit older than him. She was a teenager on, not on Krypton, it's like Sister Planet or something. Argo. Well, which sister planet colony, and she you realize you're opening the Pandora's box of which Supergirl are we talking about yeah. and which continuity? So um, I don't know. Will it be will it use to launch Supergirl? I don't know. How it can't what, be what, used what? to no, it can't be used to launch Supergirl because they're different networks, right? Sorry. So it can't. I mean, no, but you, that's an interesting question. Like, what would the point of a Krypton TV series be to set up what? The exactly? point is, we wanted to do a show. Superman is a big name. We can't actually do a Superman show because Smallville just ended up and DC isn't willing to let us to do a Superman show. So That didn't uh, stop them with the Arrow, though. No, but Justin that's, Hartley but that's, played Green Arrow for years in But that's Sifi, uh, sci-fi, whatever. So, you know, they're taking, <laughs> the what, yeah, they're taking whatever bits uh, DC is willing to throw them off, off the table, the scrap. We, just, we can do a... Com- can we do a comic book show, DC, please, please? Uh, I don't know. You can... Do it, but you can't use any of our characters. Okay, Why Krypton then. But I mean, even even accepting all of that, DC has a very, very large and very, very diverse but portfolio. Superman is in this case. I think forget Superman. The, the Why not do Booster Gold and, and Blue Beetle? Because people don't know Booster Gold, and people know Krypton. They know Superman. They know and Superman. Therefore, they know off Krypton, and the fact that we're talking about it. Yeah, but it means works against something. Them. We're not saying anything good about it. That's like, you know, Joe Quesada Kasa- you know, saying that, you know, oh, everybody was talking about uh, Onslaught back in the day. Yes, but nobody was saying anything good about it. I don't know. I just, no like, hopes. I'm trying to think as a viewer, right? As someone who has an interest in, in comics, what can this show offer me that would be legitimately entertaining and I could sit through? I mean, setting aside the fact that it's David Goyer, which, no thank you, why, you know, you're telling me this epic story about Krypton. 
it's going to explode. None of it matters. Like, all of these people are... It's, it sounds so nihilistic to but, say but, it, but, but it's... But because it's one of those prequel shows, which technically leads to something we know of, but because if it's successful, it's not going to lead to that. So, Adar, <laughs> Clark, and uh, Kal-El will be born at the end of season one. Oh, God. And if the show is successful enough, he'll grow up to be... 15, 16, 17, and the show will still go on. And somehow he ends up reverting to a baby. <laughs> no, no. Kalal is born, and at the end of season four or something, it's, he, he's having a baby, and it's Kalal Jr. Oh, God! That's what's going to happen. Oh, God! That's what's going to happen. I'm not ready for Fake that. Fake protagonist. I don't, think, I don't think I'm ready for that. I don't, I don't think that my... He's been my... faking us all this time. Oh, my God. It's not Krypton. It's its sister planet. It's a bizarre Krypton. It's really Argo. Near, near Katop. Oh, it's Earth, it's Earth 2 Krypton. <laughs> or Earth 39 Krypton. Yes. I don't... Well, listen. I'd say good luck, because I do want sci-fi to succeed at something. Um, but I can't see well, this. Well, it's programming. Sci-fi is like that comedy character. From it's all night. octopus and sharks. It's, it's 1930s Buster Keaton, Keaton comedy. You know, they're turning about, they and they're wish. hitting someone in the head, and then turning again, and they're hitting someone else in the head, <sighs> and they, you know, and they see a shiny coin, and... And they go out to pick it, and when they lift their head, they're getting hit from the window that just opened behind them. There's going to be a lot of shots. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to watch the first episode of this show just so I can laugh at it, because I know that I will be. <laughs> I'm just going to be laughing for 30 minutes straight, or 60 minutes, or however long the show's going to be. And may- and then it can go join Constantine in the bad uh, bad TV show idea pile, and we can forget that it ever happened. Some actual comics news. Right. That's... About damn time. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just so strange. There's going to be a comic book adaptation of Gem and the Holograms. Is it an adaptation or a, a relaunch? Uh, or like a launch? It's an adaptation of, of the fact there was yeah. a, such a thing called Gem and the Holograms. Gem and the Holograms. Uh, and it's going to be from IDW, and it's going to be drawn by... The amazing Ross Campbell. Yeah, the guy who gave us glory. Mm-hmm. And he's doing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series right now, which is yeah. also very good from IDW. And, and who's the writer? Kelly Thompson. Good writer. Well, hmm. I read. I mean, I read her novel, The Girl Who Would Be King. was not impressed. Okay. But I, I just question the, the wisdom of this particular license. Well, there is a movie coming out. But they're not the same. No, like, the well, comic is not based on the movie that's coming out. It's well, we based on the 80s. We don't know. No, they Jam- Okay. Jam and the Holograms, in case you don't know, and you probably don't know. You probably don't. Who knows? Yeah. Is a girl's TV show from Hasbro. Yeah. Uh, which the, the concept was, there was this girl called Jessica Benton, and mm-hmm. her father died, and he left her for some reason, I don't remember the reason... A supercomputer. Yeah, it was which, the 80s. You didn't need reasons to which leave could produce amazingly realistic holograms, mm-hmm. and she used these holograms to create for herself an image of a rock star called Jem. Yeah, and she created a band, Jem and the Holograms, and they used the money to save the orphanage or something. Yeah, I believe I remember. Very I, 80s. I, 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 Very. I actually 80s. watched it as a kid because we didn't have any any cables or anything where I grew up, so it. We had one channel, so whatever TV kids show you right. had on, you watched it. Okay. I mean, yes, I, I, I've seen some episodes, and also a lot of the show is on YouTube these days, as with most I of assume, the 80s yeah, yeah. Uh, cartoons. So, when you look at a few episodes, I mean, it is an 80s show, there's no way around it. What's weird to me about this particular uh, franchise is that the best thing about it, if you can say that, is the music. Because it's very 80s. 
there's a lot of synth, uh, synth music yeah. involved. And um, so to translate that to comics, I'm not sure how that would work. Well, you know, Josie and the Pussycats had a comic forever and ever. Yeah, but Josie and the P- Pussycats were more about the band. Okay, and Scott Pilgrim. Um, it, it does seem sort there of weird. There recently was a Kickstarter program, uh, program a pilot called Band vs. Band, the comic, which was an... Uh, web comic brought to uh, <clears throat> you know brought to print, mm-hmm. which was about two girl bands fighting, which were basically jamming the holograms with lesbian overtones becoming you know I'd over overtones, which was very good. I, yeah. I supported it, and it was very good. Shout out to Band versus Band Comics if you haven't read it. Mm-hmm. It could work. And Ross Campbell, you know, I'd read oh, pretty much designs. anything that he's Did drawing. You see the designs for the characters, yes. beautiful. It's perfectly. On the line between ridiculous and beautiful. Yeah, cartoonish, but also, like, there's a certain elegance to it. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm considering checking out the first issue. And it's IDW. IDW has treated their licenses with respect. Yes. I mean, I'm actually reading right now their Transformers line, Mm -hmm. their Ninja Turtles line, and it is a line, you know, there's multiple series with multiple writers and artists. And I haven't read, but I've heard very good news about their G.I. Joe stuff. Yeah, and their uh, Ghostbusters has been doing yeah. pretty well, too. Yeah. They, they do tend to make the effort to, having acquired these licenses, they use them in ways that are supposedly positive. I yeah. mean, I haven't read all of their stuff, but they seem to be doing well. It's a weird pick. I feel like... Well, I, just about everything else from the 80s have been stripped, <laughs> man. We're, we're having right now... You know, Shaft has been launched yes. by Dynamite, which was good. Surprisingly good. Wow. And uh, we just got Escape from New York. Yes. Following on the, hot, on the he- hot on the heels. No, no. Cold on the wheels, I'd say, of yeah. uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which is still ongoing. Has, nobody, has anyone been talking about that series, Big Trouble in Little China? It's on issue six or seven, and I've heard nothing. I, I've read the first issue. We okay, you know, nothing big. You, you know, might as major. well just see the movie. Yeah, again, it's a great movie. Uh, But speaking of Boom, uh, and of launches of very bizarre 80s properties, uh, Boom is launching a Bill and Ted miniseries. Again, not not Boom, but but there there has been a Bill and Ted series in the 90s by Ivan Dorkin, I think. Even Dorkin. Who published it? Marvel. Marvel did, wow. I think it was Marvel. Okay. It was Dorkin, so it's bound to be good. Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. Again, Bill and Ted again, but <laughs> I'm trying to think like how would I how would we? It's a time to travel stoner comedy without the stoner because there are kids and it's the 1980s and you can do as stoner best jokes. known. I think it is best known for originating the Keanu Reeves whoa moment. He was good at it. He was. As a confused Keanu child. Reeves plays vacant child very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Now I'm sort of, I'm even more baffled by this choice because it's not a John Carpenter and Kurt Russell thing. So so the pattern's broken and I don't know what to expect from whom anymore. Well, and I'm terribly confused by all of these things many, coming back. How many Carpenter and Russell com, you know presentations can you do? What else have you got left? John Carpenter has a very long yeah, time. Yeah, but uh, Kurt Russell? Probably. I don't know. I mean, wasn't he also in that Vampires thing? No, that, he no? wasn't in John Carpenter's Vampires. That was James Woods. <sighs> Wow. Uh, well, you could. Ru- next you could, thing you, you know, know they'll do Stargate. You know what? They're going to do Stargate. Escape for LA and run it. <laughs> with Escape from New York. Oh no! Don't give them ideas. Although it's they'll do it. Happen. You know, boom, boom. They are they, like I, I really do enjoy their original content. Yeah. 
the tie-ins are so like they pick such weird things. We they, talk about IDW as having like this random license look, generator. There's, there, there's but, this, there are this rule for adaptations. Take up the litter, goes to Dark Horse, which takes the be- not so much anymore. Well, not anymore, but originally, you know, Dark Horse has the biggest names because they came there first. You know, yeah. Alien, Predator, Star Wars. What mm-hmm. After them, IDW. IDW goes for the big nostalgia loves. Uh, your Transformers, your G.I. Joes, your yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Following them is Boom at the time, which picked the Disney shows that people really yes. liked but weren't too sure about your DuckTales. And then they lost that. And after them, there's Dynamite, which takes whatever left, literally. Whatever has the biggest boobs is what they No, take. no, no. Dynamite takes whatever ha- is the cheapest. because They were doing Red Sonja. Oh, right. But also, yeah. I'm talking about those pop heroes, you know, Mandrake the Magician and the oh. Phantom, which they probably bought for, you know, a spare. A, di- a dime and a sandwich. Probably. That's the rule of adaptations in comics. Well, listen, I, I enjoy the unpredictability. You never know when you open the previews but, what uh, what property are going to be. What's next? Thundercats are probably going to be next, right? Yeah, uh, Silverhawks. We've talked about Silver that. Silverhawks. And <laughs> it's a crime that nobody asked Garth Ennis to do a Rambo series. I think, like, every series Garth Ennis does is a Rambo series. No, every series in spirit. Done, no, every series he's done is kill his heroes. <laughs> but that's 70. So Sad, but true. So, I'm going to spoil something. As an, a news item, uh, spoilers for the latest issue of Axis, and I really want to sort of just talk about it very, very briefly, uh, because it, it does sort of highlight a, a, an ongoing problem that we're having right now. So in the latest issue of Axis, through very convoluted means, Rick Remender seems to suggest that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are, in fact, not Magneto's children. I'm just imagining Rick Remender like watching too many episodes of Maury. You are not the father. And then Magneto gets up and does like this dance with forks or something. I, I assume, don't know. I'd assume he's watching telenovelas right now. <sighs> the paternity in this family. I don't even know where to start. It's an X-Men family. Obviously the paternity is screwed over. But. It's not as bad as the okay. Summers Clan. Okay. At least that. Oh god. No, uh, you'd have to work pretty hard to get it to the level of the Summers Clan. But. The, the, the question that came into my mind, and really, like, it's the same thing that has been bothering me with all of these sort of decisions that are being made with the big two right now, is, is why? What is the point? There was an argument, I don't know if it was on Comics Alliance or elsewhere, but somebody brought up the point where, okay, they're not Magneto's children, next you'll find, you'll find out that they're not mutants, and there you go, they're synchronized with the Marvel Cinematic Universe now. Makes sense. Makes sense, but... No, because I enjoy the Marvel Cinematic Universe very, very much. I don't necessarily want to see it dictate the Marvel Comics Universe. But see, someone at Marvel Summit read the term synergy and said, Oh... That's not what it means! I I just... (laughs) This thing is like... And I've made this comparison, and really, like, it it kept sticking in my mind when I saw that. It's like Chinatown, where, like, you, you get these retcon slaps, so it's like, He's my father. Slap! My brother. Slap my father. Slap my brother. He's my father and my brother. It's just, I mean, why? Why are you retconning something? And really, when you think about it, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, the only interesting stories that have ever been told about them for 40, 50 years is the fact that they deal with the fact that they are the children of a supervillain. That's the only thing well, no, that is ever... has the nice story about, you know, a jerk superhero, which is always fun. Why is he a jerk superhero, though? Because of his father. Because of his relationship there with Magneto. There was 
a classic X Factor story by Peter David about yeah. living. No, about how he's so fast and how he's living in a world of slow people, and that's what sure, makes but, him a jerk. But uh, at the same time, well, Magneto was dead at the time. Yeah. So that makes sense. But also, Peter David's run dovetails into Fatal Attractions, which was all about Quicksilver as the particle we sun. We not talk about Fatal Attractions in this podcast, sir. Hey, Wolverine's adamantium ended up being on the outside of his body yet again, so clearly... Some things are worth preserving. But anyway, so... And, and I mean, the Scarlet Witch has been so... Manhandled. Wow. I mean, when you think about the amount of nonsense that this character has you know, been run through... Yes, when Marvel decided that um, Captain Marvel slash Miss Marvel... Um, Carol Danvers. When Marvel finally decided that Carol Danvers deserves some respect, they turned the Scarlet Witch into her... Suffering alternate. Yeah, she has to suffer whenever a writer comes up and like, I'm gonna put this character through the ringer, <sighs> and not through the emotional ringer like Daredevil, through the plot ringer. Yeah, and, and, and for no terrible. reason, for yeah. for no reason at all. There is absolutely no good that will come from a retcon that says that the Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are not Magneto's children anymore. It, it doesn't lead anywhere interesting. It's not a new revelation. It's not something that will completely change the characters. Well, if it's, they if they decide they're you know like a, still a villain's children, you know they're Maximus the Matter or something. No, 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 no. It's been done. The wheels have been set in motion. I, I just I don't. Jonathan Hickman has already written them to the plot of his. Hickman would not have done this. No. This is something that's remember. This is for I don't know. I don't. Think that retcon comes from the man who gave us Claw. I don't think it's Remender. I think it's bigger than Remender. I think it's, you know, the managers up top saying, well, we have to tie them into that movie first. Why? Quicksilver was in Days of Future Past with Magneto, and they did not bring up the fact that he was his father. That's not a Marvel movie. Didn't have to be. Like an X-Men movie, you have Quicksilver, you have Magneto, you... You know, the, 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 the in-joke was there, but not the revelation. So if you're not going to deal with it anyway, why change the comics in such a way? And I mean... If it were any other family or any other, like, father-children relationship, fine. But we've been on this Polaris merry-go-round where, you know, she's his daughter. No, she's not. Yes, she is. No, she's not. Yes, she is. Chuck Austin, of all the people in the Marvel Universe, decided that she is and it's stuck for some reason. And, I mean, really, when you're basing your decision on something that Chuck Austin decided, it's time to stop and think, you know? It's just... And, really, this group of characters has been so maligned by pointless retcons that nobody honors anyway. When when Greg Pak decided that Magneto's real, true, real, 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 true name is Max Eisenstadt or Eisenhardt or something, to this day, people, like, there are writers at Marvel who refer to him as Eric Lenscher because that's the name that people recognize. And changing his name doesn't mean anything. But, but, still not as bad as Donald Troy. Still not as... Well, listen. It, Don, Donna Troy, like the Summers Clan, is sort of this apex of convolution where you really have to work hard. The continuity error that walks like a man. You couldn't do it. It's like, you tell someone, please reproduce Donna Troy. I wouldn't know where to start. Even Kurt Busiek, if he's given that product, and Kurt Busiek can do pretty much Kurt anything. Kurt Busiek would be like, no, thank you. No, he, no he'd be I, like, he's staring at you for like two minutes straight and then saying... I got nothing. No. He's like, Kurt Music, oh, you sit Kurt Music and Roy Thomas at the table, and you're like, guys, can you please come up with sort of a, a Donna Troy in ten words? And they just look at each other, and they're like, you want to go get some coffee? <laughs> I think we need we need a break. <laughs> we, we need to get out of here. So, no thank you, Rick Remender. Um, 
you know, you tried it, and maybe you were under orders, but it's just... It's a bad idea. It's not going to work. It's not a retcon that will stand the test of time. Because there are more interesting stories that you get with them as Magneto's children than as not. So, to hell with all of that. Stop doing pointless retcons. You know, work with the characters you have. And now, reviews. Reviews. Yes. Let's start with a good, with a good comic? Sure. A, mar- a good Marvel comics to get us over yeah. the bad... Bad taste of Axis. Yeah, Wash the... it right out of our mouths with Spider-Man and the X-Men number one. Yep. Spider-Man and the X-Men number one. Uh, written by Elliot Kalan. Uh, art by Marco Faia. Now, we pointed out uh, when we saw this in the previews that uh, the interesting thing here, the, the main draw was not necessarily the plot, but the notion that Elliot Kalan was a writer for The Daily Show. Yeah. And uh, that the the sensibilities of a comedic writer would be interesting in this context. This comic is funny. Yep. This comic is genuinely laugh-out-loud funny. I mean, I I enjoyed every single page, every gag, every joke. And this the, was the impressive right thing, pick. it's not funny in the Daily Show, you know, angry, angry no. cynical. It's, it's funny not satire. The, it's, cl- it's funny in the classic Spider-Man mode. Yeah. There are jokes and gags, and they work. Yeah. There's a ridiculous old Spider-Man villain, and it works. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, the plot of this yes. is that Spider-Man has been asked by Logan in a side the note. dearly departed Logan. <laughs> For now. Yes. Kisses Logan. <laughs> That's a great start. And it really, it it shows something, like, right from the first page, it demonstrates that Kalan understands not only Spider-Man, because he gets Spider-Man's voice down perfectly, but the relationship between (laughs) Spider-Man and Wolverine. Okay, we we have to quote this, because that's the the note that Spider-Man gets. Hey, nerd, I've got a big job for you, and there ain't nobody else I can trust. Meet me at the bar where we got in that fight with these guys who called you a nerd. <laughs> Kiss a slogan. <laughs> that is... <laughs> That's such a great it's line. It's perfect. It is a perfect Okay, opening. so he's asked by Logan to teach the remedial class in the Jean Grey Academy. Well, to serve as a guidance counselor. Which is composed mostly of the cut-offs from uh, Morrison's new X-Men. Yeah. That remedial class... Along with some other characters like Helion and Rockslide. I didn't recognize those, by the way. The, the, I, there were there were characters here Ernest, that were Ernest, No Girl. Right. Ernest and No Girl are from Morrison. Yeah. Uh, Helion and Rockslide are from the new X Men Academy X yes. uh, group. And Shark Girl, were, I don't. Know. I don't know who they are. Shark Girl and the I, the boy with the eye eyes. Guy. Eye, eye, eye boy. I Glob Herman was also yes. from New X Men. Yeah. But. So there's this interesting combination Mix. of different layers okay. of... So body. he's been asked to teach there, yeah. and the X-Men, the adult X-Men, sort of accept him, basically on Logan's demand, yeah. because they hate him. That's Which is that, weird. That's, that's the one thing that's off, because Storm hates him on the spot for no reason, along with the other X-Men. Yeah. That's a bit too much. I don't remember off the top of my head whether... Spider-Man had ever actually been affiliated with the X-Men at any point well, prior. Well, you know, he met most of them at crossovers and such. Right. There was this miniseries, Spider-Man X-Men, a few years back, which was pretty good. Yeah. So, you but, know, so it's, it's not supposed to be that We're not mad. supposed to linger on it. I, okay. I think it, it does sort of serve the story. That he's an outsider at the outsider school. Exactly. That, that um, you know, he keeps, like, in the very first page, or the, the first few pages... Uh, Storm is flying him in, and he keeps putting his foot in his mouth. He's like, you know, so, you know, how's the, how's your husband doing? I'm like, we're divorced. Oh, whoops. <laughs> and then he, he gets into this argument about uh, with Beast about, like, you know, so you're the guy who hid your mutant formula by drinking it. Uh, and, and sort of the, the, the banter that he has with the adult um, X-Men 
is very entertaining, especially considering that they're in the middle of a supervillain fight, which he wins. (laughs) And he wins. So it it sort of, it crystallizes the dynamic immediately, and I loved it. It's like, because that really makes sense, like, for Spider-Man to be a school The the constant outsider, even in the outsider school. And the only person who's wearing a mask. He has a secret identity, and the X-Men don't, which... So can contribute uh, to that we, sort of... Can we talk about the other big plot? It's not a twist, yeah, but it's, it's mentioned early well, on. Well, sort enough. of the, the, the setup here that yeah, we find the, out. Why, why Logan asked him to be. Yeah. He thinks, or rather Logan is sure, that one of the students in that class is a mole working mm-hmm. for one of the X-Men's enemies, and Spider-Man is basically supposed to find them out along with yeah. teaching them power and responsibility and the classic Marvel line. I'm less convinced that that works. That's it's well, it's a good excuse to why Spider-Man needs to be there because just coming in to teach them long term doesn't work in terms of the Spider-Man continuity at the moment. And I don't the writer recognizes that. that he says, you know, Spider-Man says, "I've got all this stuff on my head in my own title. I actually can't do it." But right. since there's actual danger, not just you know, students need to be teaching, I have to be involved. That works, and that's a good use of the Marvel continuity. I guess I would have preferred for it to be a bit clearer then. Like, if you say they're a mole for the Hellfire Club, or they're a mole for Apocalypse, or for the Acolytes, or something, that at least gives you sort of a tangential idea of what is it exactly that we as readers should be looking for. Because, I mean, let's be realistic. It's not going to be Hellion. It's not going to be Rockslide. It's not going to be Ernst or Martha We don't Johansson. know. But, no, Maybe it's these not going to be either of them. It's, it could be nobody. Right. And Logan was it, wrong. Well, that could be true, too. Maybe it could be the maybe Banff. It's the Banff. I, I, I did not... This was actually the first time that I, I'd seen a Banff, so I had to look up what it was. Oh, and Didn't wow. you read Wolverine and the X-Men? No. Oh, that, no. that was a good series. Uh, well, you know, Jason and the original one. a complicated relationship. But, uh, They're so, used to great comedic value. I, oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, the, the Banffs are messing with Peter Parker in such a perfectly typical Spider-Man way. Like, one of them crawls... He is standing in class, and, and I have to mention that the art really sells the sort of ridiculous angle here, where he's standing in front of the special class in costume with a jacket on top of it. And the Banff slips into his jacket and teleports his shirt away, and he's basically standing there, like, half-naked in front of his students. And that's the exact moment, of course, where Storm comes in, and she's like, well, what's going on over here? So, I I loved it. Faila really sells it. Uh, Kalan has the voice down perfectly for all the characters. And I, I think he made... I mean, we talk so much about, you know, poor creative decisions. But this is what a good creative decision looks like, where in the very first issue, we have a team-up between Stegron and Sauron who want to turn Staten Island into the new Savage Land. I'm sick of the Savage Land, but this made me laugh. And Spider-Man is, of course, sitting there and he's like, oh, God, are we in the Savage Land? No. No, we're even worse. It's worse. It's Staten Island. And it's, it's, it's laugh out loud funny and you know it says so much about marvel's current output that they don't have enough books like this that when one of them comes out and when someone like kalan really manages to nail the the comedic aspect and the art also manages to communicate the sort of laugh out loud moments you enjoy it so much you know i mean Miss Marvel has some of this too, but G. Willow Wilson isn't a comedy writer. Yeah. She writes it from the perspective of, you know... Serious teenage and, drama. Yeah, and there are scenes with Lockjaw, for example, that are funny. Like when, when Kamala brings Lockjaw to her family, they're like, what the hell is that? It's a giant dog going to follow me home. It's funny, but it's not 
the purpose of the series. Here, I feel like if we get 12 issues of Elliot Kalan's run, and I, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to enjoy every minute. Let of it be it. more. I want him to develop this. I do too. And after that, I mean, I I'm skeptical that it'll last very long, simply because like you know, we can't ignore the fact that Logan will be back. And as soon as he comes back, you know that it's going to be Wolverine and the X Men again. We're, we're not sure. You know, Marvel I, Marvel is greedy enough for them to have Wolverine and the X Men and Spider Man and the X Men at the same fine, time. Which is fine. I this I, is a series. I'm sold. I'm here for the entire run. Elliot yeah. Kalan, whatever. I mean, I, I can't even see it... I can't see him making the kind of wrong move that would cause the book to deteriorate. It's just fun from page one to page last and, and absolutely, you know, Joy. bring it on. Okay. So let's go to the distinguished competition, I think. Yeah. So... Okay. That's the... Now we're going to talk about the relaunch of Secret Six. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the third volume by now. I've stopped counting. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot because there was an original season, uh, Secret Six season, even before. Yeah, it's the uh, Villains United miniseries that came before. No, no, no. I mean, there was a pre Gail Simone's group called the Secret Six. Was there? Okay. I'm, I'm talking like Silver Age. Oh, okay. But well, it was Silver. not anything like this. So, as you already mentioned, the writer is Gail Simone. Gail Simone. Who wrote the previous two volumes. So, sure. you know, uh, the obvious choice. And mm-hmm. the artist is Ken Lashby, which. Good artist. Yeah, with uh, a little help from Drew Garati. Yeah, so in case you don't know, the Secret Six are secret. You know, they're <laughs> <laughs> no, there's six. There are six villains. Yeah. It's basically it's the Suicide Squad continue, well, and they're su- mercenaries. They're not under the government. They're basically right. secret uh, Suicide Squad as mercenaries. Yes, that's what. That's at least the two previous volumes. Um, okay, so to prepare for this review, I actually went back and tried to read the previous run because it was also by Gail Simone. Yeah. And you could be forgiven for thinking that there would be some kind of through line here, which as it turns out there isn't, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Well, the characters. One of the characters. One of the characters. Um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the differences between Marvel and DC in terms of how they tell stories and their creative decisions and the way that they put their comics together. But really, if you want to boil it down to sort of one very interesting fact regarding their publishing ethos, it's that in 2008, Marvel had recap pages and DC didn't. Now, for context, I just want to sort of explain here. And I think you're a lot like me in that sense. Like, we're not hardcore DC readers. No. But we are also not people who need the tropes of the DCU explained to us. You know, we know who Batman is. We know how the Justice League works. We we don't need to be told about Harley Quinn or Supergirl or Azrael or any of that, right? Like, we know these things. Yep. We're like Layla Miller. We know things. We know stuff. <laughs> So when I tell you that I read Simone's run on Secret Six and I gave up after 10 issues because I had no goddamn clue what any of it meant. I really liked Simone's original run. But I didn't understand it. Like, it's structurally incoherent. The plot keeps jumping from one thing to the next and there's no sense of flow. I don't know who these people maybe, are. Maybe it's because Ragdoll I read it. was entertaining. But I, I read it from the beginning, so I didn't have that problem. So did I. Well, no, what I thought was the beginning yeah, turned out you, to not be the beginning. Yeah, you read apparently volume three, uh, volume two, and I've read volume one. Well, again, a recap page would have really helped to clarify that. So I, I basically, I couldn't make it to the end of okay. the run because I didn't know who these people were. Now, so, here comes the new issue. Which is all about establishing characters. Yeah. And that's my problem with it, because for me, it's too slow. What happens here is that we meet Thomas Blake, a.k.a. Catman, mm-hmm. because Gail Simone has a thing with Catman. He was the star, one of the stars of, the ori- of her original run, and he got all the... Best, almost all of the best lines along with that shot. And he's at a bar and some people come to arrest him. And then we jump cut into a prison where he wakes up with 
bunch of other guys who are... Five other people. Yeah. The secret... The new secret They are the new secret Yes. And then they just sit there and talk. Yeah. And I find it boring. She tries to establish characters, but for me, it's five, six people sitting in a room talking, and the stuff they talk wasn't that interesting. And Ken actually tries to live in it up with, you know, changing the, the angles and jumping, and there's some violence, but... It's six people in a very small doll space sitting and talking. That's boring to me. Unless the talk is very good. And this is not it. This is, you know, it isn't some brilliant dialogue. I haven't come out of it knowing who these characters are, except from Thomas Blake, who we've been introduced to in the first half of the issue. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, so I, I think the reason that we have different opinions about this issue is precisely because you read the previous, like, you have that context, and I didn't. And when I started this issue, this is what, you know, when New 52 is being discussed as a jumping on point, in my opinion, this is what it means, because I didn't have the problem here that I had before. Yes, it is, fundamentally, when you look at what the issue contains, it is six villains waking up in a room with no idea how they got there, talking about themselves just enough for you to know what their powers are. Hello, so, my name is X. Hello, yeah, I'm Black Alice, and I can do this, and... and the, okay, fine. I feel like if this issue had happened at the start of the previous run, when I, I tried to read uh, a Simone, I might have gotten farther along, because it does give you a sense going forward of, you know, here's where you start. Here are these people, because I don't know, I, I didn't recognize... Uh, in the new issue, I recognized Catman, and that was it. Yeah, I, there was a weird well, bit. The, well, the, the issue I, ends with like the revelation that this old woman is the ventriloquist. Who I thought there's was, a new ventriloquist. That's in, okay. Yeah. Well, there's all a new the characters. Too. Well, why not? <laughs> okay. I, I, I sort of I know Black Alice from Simone's Birds of Prey. She was there. Oh, so I don't. I okay, don't but I have no idea who Big Shot is, for example, and mm-hmm. I don't know the new v- v- ventriloquist. Other than the fact that she's the new ventriloquist. Right. There doesn't seem to be any. So it does serve as sort of this... Okay. The the dialogue isn't super brilliant, but it does give you enough to know, A, who these people... Like, a little taste of who they are, what their abilities are, the fact that they're all on equal footing, because they all wake up in this box and they don't know what's going on. So it's not that you're being thrown into a situation in Medias Race and you have no way to catch up. Um... It's a stronger introduction, I think, than Simone's yeah, previous run. but you talked earlier about momentum, and that's the thing. It's a good introduction, but for me, it carries no momentum. Right. I don't feel anything towards what happens in the issue. It's You know what it is? It's a nice zero issue. Yes. And that's what a zero issue yeah. should look like, but zero issue well, comes as a preview to the first issue, and... You know, I would have accepted it as part of DC's zero issue month a few uh, two years ago. Yeah. But as an issue one, I want you to hit the ground running. Again, we just talked about Spider-Man and the X-Men, which did all the introduction of characters and knew, you know, we didn't know who Shargirl was, we didn't know who Hyperio was, we got an idea about who they are now, Mm -hmm. and we got some action. And here it's, yeah, that's it. And maybe it's it's mostly set up. Yeah, and maybe because I've read it after reading Spider-Man and the X-Men, that I got my expectations up. But I'm sorry, our expectations towards first issues should be up. The rules are, yeah. Introduce the cast, have them do something, and if it's if at all possible, along with setting up, you know, the ongoing plot, have something self self contained going on. Right. For me, the, like the, the perfect idea. first issue is forever going to be chew number one. Yes. Which was here's the cast, here's their world, here's a mystery that they solved in the first issue, and here's the ongoing plot for the rest of the series. 
And this one only did one of the three things. It introduced the cast properly. Well, it does sort of set up the the mystery of... But it's such a general mystery. It Who is. Us... That, I think, might be the sticking point. It's the fact that, you know, the, the notion that they wake up in a lockbox and that someone is trying to manipulate them into doing something is not the most original setup in the world. And Simone doesn't put enough of a twist in the first issue. I think part of why I might be more forgiving here is because I like the concept of the Secret Six. I like that the idea that and we like Gail Simone. In previous, well, Gail Simone lately, I can take her or leave her. But like this issue, I actually thought was okay because I want to be hooked. And I read the previous run of Secret Six because I wanted to get into it and I couldn't. So the fact that it's more, this is more of a general starting point is actually more appealing to me for me as a new reader because I'm like, okay, I know about as much here as the characters, and I'm okay with that. If like I'm, I'm willing to give it another issue at least. I'll come back for issue two just to see if, having gotten the introduction out of the way, there's something more. Because I have no idea what the premise uh, of the series I'll, is. I'll wait for the first arc to round up, and then if their reviews are good, I'll come back. But otherwise, not interested. Okay. Okay, so that's Marvel and DC, and as a rule, we've got to have an image number one. Big three. Yeah, the big three. And I think you'll introduce this one? Sure. So this is Bitch Planet number one, uh, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, art by Valentine Delandro. I think that we, when we talked about this issue in the previews, I said, you know, this is really the last chance that I'm giving Kelly Sue DeConnick. And I, I want to stress, she's not a bad writer. She's not Jeff Loeb. She's not Daniel Wade. No, no, no. You know, she's not, she's, she's not fine. bad. Yeah, she's a but fine writer. I've but I've never felt that kind of connection to her work. She's never managed to hook me. I think she's got, you know, she's got big ideas, but she doesn't seem, her writing doesn't seem to live up to them. Like, pretty yeah. deadly was a book that wanted to be Sandman as a Western. Yeah. And it's a great idea, and it had great art because Emma Rios was blowing all stops there. But the book itself was so... Vaguely written. Very yeah. sort of amorphous. Yeah, very like, unclear. Well, if we talk about it vaguely enough, and if we throw in all those... St- you know, if we're saying it's all stories and ideas and legends and myths, yeah. you know, you'll think it's interesting. And I'm... No, Captain I'm Marvel has, has a similar problem in the sense that it's... So loosely structured and so unorganic. In terms I like of how her. I, I kind of like her when she's being intentionally light and funny and self-contained, like her Avengers assembles. Uh, you know, one shot, mm. one shots. Some of the, you know, Captain Marvel when it was basically just one story per issue. Uh, yeah. Her Avenging Spider-Man two issue run, which was fine. I mean, part of me wants to root for her just because she and G Willow Wilson are currently the highest profile female writers. In comics. In fact, did you hear about that whole story with the Creative uh, Summit? Uh, no. Do, do, do explain. Uh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm bringing this in as sort of context for why I want to like this issue so much and why I'm sort of rooting for Deconic. There was basically this sort of, um, I guess you could call it a blow-up, where Kelly Sue Deconic was at this convention and somebody asked her about the, the Marvel uh, Writers Summit, the Creator Summit, where they all go up and... and discuss ideas for the coming Smoke year. Smoke cigars and drink brandy. Pretty much. Turns out no female writer had ever been invited, and DeConnick also wasn't. Tom Brevard, being the idiot that he is, decided to stick his foot all the way into his mouth and down into his intestines and said, 
Well, the reason we didn't invite Kelly Sue DeConnick is because she's not a Marvel exclusive writer, to which Rich Johnston, because of course Rich Johnston isn't going to stay out of it, said um, Charles Soleil was Rick, up there. Rick, Rick Remender, maybe? Rick Remender was up there. Jason Aaron. Yeah, it's like there, there Jonathan are, Hickman. There's a list of people who are not Marvel exclusive who all have made the, the summit of, round. Yes, and, all of them. Um, now, what happened as a result was, like, on the one hand, interesting. On the other hand, uh, sort of unfortunate. A woman was invited to the recent summit, but it was G. Willow Wilson. <laughs> so we like G. I love G. Willow well, Wilson. Well, we don't. What we don't like is the fact that yeah, no women was ever invited right. to the Marvel summit. That's it's okay. So you invite G. Willow Wilson. Good start. She wasn't the, the focal point of the argument. Kelly Sue DeConnick was. So why not invite them both? I know. I, I, well, what, what, you well, teach this, for, because you know, for Tell, Kelly Sue DeConnick. Because G. Willow Wilson is better. Well, <laughs> She's a better writer. Well, if we're going according to quality of writers, there's a lot of writers we would yes. put Kelly Sue DeConnick ahead of ahead yes, on in yes. Marvel. So yeah. that's not the argument. We both know it. Marvel knows it. Yeah. Just don't be the asshole. Well, go tell Tom Brevard then, because I don't think he gets the memo. He just has to make things worse on Twitter every time. But anyway, so... He's practicing for writing Spider-Man but by really, putting his foot up his own mouth. But really, I mean, DeConnick is a solid writer in the sense that she manages to gather around her respective books coherent fan bases that stick with her through thick and thin. The reason Cameron, uh, the, the, hmm, the reason Carol Danvers has a film is because Kelly Sue DeConnick made such a concentrated effort to elevate this character. Because, I mean, you remember when she was Ms. Marvel, right? Yeah. You remember, she was not, even after Chris Claremont and, and Brian Reed tried to sort of redeem her, she was never a prominent Marvel character until DeConnick got a hold of her. So I respect her for that, but I can't say as a reader that I've ever felt hooked. And in comes Bitch Planet, which is an original work, which doesn't have any links to existing material, and I'm reading it, and I want to—I want this to be her Nikolai Dante, and it's not. Well, it's not bad. Okay, the plot of it is—it's a futuristic science fiction thing, and in this society, women are oppressed to the extreme. To the extreme, every yeah. single thing that you do that's outside the norm is decided by the amorphous body of government is punishable by immediate. Whatever, you know, they can do whatever they want to you if you're a woman. If you're too fat, you know, you grew out of the norm. Crime. If you're too skinny. If you're not obedient enough. If you're not nice enough to your husband. And they ship you off to Bitch Planet. Yeah. Well, that's not a proper name. Use the proper name. (laughs) The outpost, uh, whatever. Well, I mean, it's... Which is a prison in space. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an entire prison planet populated by women. Uh, the major plot of this issue is there's this woman who's the timid newcomer, as they always are in yeah. prison movies. Yeah, she's Piper from Orange is the New Black. Yeah, that's, she's that's Tim... Uh, not Tim Robbins. Uh, who was it in Shawshank Redemption? Tim Robbins. Uh, oh, yeah, Tim Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm correcting myself. <laughs> no, you're right. Yes. It, Tim Robbins' character, you know, the was, new guy who shows up in prison and yeah. doesn't know any other rules and has to be sort of taken under the wing of, a, of an existing prisoner. Yeah, and we also have the story of her husband, who... Mm-hmm. Why she was shipped there. Yeah. That story I actually liked more than the main story. There was... It was creepy enough. It was okay. sort of a short... Cre- okay. We need to spoil it because th- this was part of my problem with the issue. There are two central twists here. Yes. The first concerns the husband's story of, you know, he, he is talking to this person after his wife has been sent off to Bitch Planet. 
and he is supposedly you know, trying to fix his mistake. Yeah, he, she's not supposed she's to be supposed there. To be there, and the, the wife's dialogue sort of echoes this: "I'm not supposed to be here. I made a mistake." Yada yada yada, and it turns out not to be what we think it is. That's an effective twist. That's a that's a good short story from, yeah. from the time that you would have an eerie or creepy, you know. Yeah, uh, 2000 AD would have done it. Absolutely. You know, th- there's it's executed very well. The problem is at the end of the issue, we get another twist. And that twist is sort of not, not good it's, because a, it's expected. It's almost No, it, it well, wasn't expected. Well, once we introduce the character who commits who sort of is the focus of the new twist, I sort of, oh, well, the way they're talking about her, obviously... They literally say she's the new star of the show. Yeah. So there's no ambivalence there. But the problem is that what happens with the second twist, and I'll try to keep it vague, is that it basically invalidates the entire issue. Because we think that we are following a specific character, and it turns out we're not. Now, this sort of twist can be effective, but the problem is the person who comes in at the end to be sort of the, you know, you said fake protagonist. Yeah. The person who turns out to be the real protagonist, we know nothing about her because we haven't seen it. Well, we know that she's cool and awesome. Yeah, you know. Because she says, you know. Because they say she's cool, cool and, and awesome. Cool and awesome. Yeah. Which is a bad way to sell a character. And really, it, it goes back to characterization. I think this, like, if I had to sort of pick out DeConnick's main area of, of weakness as a writer, it is characterization. Because what we actually have here, there are three female prisoners who we get to see something of them. Penny Roll is, you know, the large, overweight woman who is a large, overweight, aggressive woman. There's there's nothing much there, but you can sort of see what her, her role in the plot is. That's one. We have Kamua, who who comes in at the end, and, and who who is... The, the guards actually say, you know, oh, we have found the star of the show. And we have Marion, who seems to be the protagonist. You know, she's the wife. She's the person who shows up at the beginning of the issue. And, you know, we see everything through her perspective and she turns out not to be the person we're meant to follow. So what do you actually have here? Yeah, who, it, who are we meant to be following? Marion's stories would have been good as, I think, a side story or something. Or as a first arc. No, or, you know, not a first arc. Something to happen down the line. Yeah. But... In this kind of series, especially when it's called Beach Planet and, you know, the publicity plays up, it's an aggressive, it's post-exploitation, you should hit the ground running. And the only time we actually hit the ground running is towards the end of the issue. Mm -hmm. And, again, like like Secret Six, it sort of kills dead my interest in it. Yeah. You know... What happens at the end invalidates everything that came I can't believe I'm saying it. Be more extreme. The series is called Bitch Planet. Bang ahead, you know, break all locks. I don't think the ext- I don't think being extreme is is necessarily called for because one of the, one other problem here is that it's not entirely clear to me what Deconic is trying to do. There is a lot of talk. There's a the postscript. There's a postscript that talks a lot about you know the idea of feminism and exploitation and, and all of that. Which is a good postscript. It is a good postscript, but when you look at the issue, I'm not entirely sure that that's what comes across because. The, the twist concerning the husband would have been an effective launching point for Marion's story. Like, once you figure out what's really going on over there, and again, like I said, that is DeConnick's best moment in the issue, when it turns out that you're not hearing what you thought you were hearing. But then, it doesn't matter, because it, it's, it's not what this story is about in the end. It, it turns out to be something completely different. And that completely different thing comes out of nowhere we don't know anything 
anything. Not one character trait about Kamua, the, the, the woman who's introduced at the end. I, I don't even know, like, okay, so if I come to the second issue here, what is it exactly that I'm supposed to be seeing? The first issue. The second, <laughs> this, it appears that the second issue would be the first issue right. of the proper series, and that's... You know, what is, on the strength of the first issue, if I were to ask you, you know, what is Bitch Planet about? Ignore the postscript for a moment. You know, the postscript says a lot about the, the agenda of the text, which is fine, but does not really tell you what is this series about, who is it about. It's it's just you know it would have been a good feint if we if Marion's uh, uh, interactions within the prison had happened alongside the other character like if we could have seen more of both of them together before the big revelation you could at least say okay I, I can make the switch there's there's just nothing there and and it's it's a misstep and it's well, a misstep that the comic makes very often and okay. and I think that that's that boils down to why it's so difficult for me well, to, it, to avoid it's, her story. It's better than beautiful... Not it's better than Pretty Deadly. Well, pretty Deadly, right. No, but look, because Pretty Deadly has the same problem. Who is the protagonist of Pretty Deadly? No, but it does. What <laughs> I'm saying, uh, it's been a long time since I've read Pretty Deadly, sorry. But I'm saying it's better than Pretty Deadly in that it establishes everything that you need to know about the series and about yeah. the world in the first issue. That it does properly. But it does that by leaning on tropes that do not need to be explained. Like, when you say to someone, this is a planet, this is a women's prison on a planet, what more do you need for a setup? Pretty deadly, you, you could make the argument that it was too obscure? ambitious and obscure in terms of what it was trying to set up for the world of the story. Here, it's like, okay, bitch planet. Female prison in space. What more need be said, right? right. What else... You, you can start from that and, and go forward, but... Let's talk about the art a bit, because poor Valentine... The arts! Yeah, <laughs> poor Delandro. Um, no, it's good. It's, it's good. It's you serviceable. Know, it's, you know, it's Good not storytelling. Pe- Penny, uh, you know, the design for Penny Rollo, or Penny Roll, or whatever her name is. She, you know, she is this huge, hulking, imposing figure. Uh, uh, so that is definitely effective, yeah. but... You know, it's there. You don't see a lot of these characters in fiction, in right. comics, in general. So, well, you do see a lot of them in prison fiction. Like, there's always the big scary person, but it's usually a guy, you right? Know, you, you, well, even in even it's in, it's part of the story. You know, you don't get to see these type of characters, figures in comics. You know, because in most prison stories about women prisons, all of them are made to be you know glamorous and beautiful. And are they? I haven't watched a lot of prison movies, obviously. I, well, the the comparison that everyone is going to be coming to, and I, in fact, I've already made it, is, is, is Orange is the, the New, New Black. Black. I mean, because that's like the big prison narrative that's Well, but she's movies. aiming for a different type of prison story. She the seems 90, to be aiming for Oz. 90, no, it's it's supposed to be 1970s exploitation. I, I haven't watched a lot of 1970s exploitation. I don't know that so context. May, maybe it's part of the context thing. Uh, the thing I have a problem with is the coloring, which is a bit flat to me. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not lively. It's not lively enough. The art's good, but I needed more oomph to it. There's nothing... It's like the, the script doesn't give the art opportunities to do anything on you, yeah. Because, like, what do you actually the, have the, here? The, yeah, the pink warden is nice, you know, as, as an idea. Sure, but, you know. But not, not more than that. There, there's no... I think we're being so critical about something that we didn't hate because we. we it's I okay. didn't hate. I don't. I, I never hate Deconic's work. I just don't ever feel the need to come back for more. Yeah. That's the catch. It's like it's to say that it's average and to say that it's mediocre and to say that it's you know okay is fine. 
But at how much is this? Two ninety nine, three ninety nine. I think it's three fifty. Three fifty for three fifty. I can't say that I would want to come back for a second issue. Not on the conceptual level, because again, like the high concept here isn't something that is so alien and so bizarre that I need more time to understand. Not in terms of the character, because in fact, the character that we get accustomed to in the first issue is not the the, the hero of the story. Not for the premise, because I still don't know what the premise is. So it's like, none of these things are bad, but they're missing the hook that... I mean, we're disagreeing about Secret Six, but I can at least say, you know, enough has been shown to me here that I'm curious about what comes next. Bitch Planet number two will come out, and I don't feel like I need to pick it I up. Think, I think I'm the other way around. I'm actually more curious about Bitch Planet. Maybe because it's a, you know, it's a image project. Maybe because I've already had my fill of Secret Six. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try issue two and see if, if this one actually picks up the steam that it needs. Okay. I, I might come back for the first trade, but to be completely <laughs> honest with you, no, to be honest, it's like I never went back for the first trade of Pretty Deadly. Well, there, there was only one issues. trade. Yeah, but I, when the trade came out, I didn't use it to catch up and like reread and try and reevaluate because it was just like, I don't feel... I re- well, the first five issues cohere at the end, you know, yeah. cohere, the, there's a plot, there's a beginning, middle, and end, and it's almost ending on its own, and I'm, that's a miniseries, so it's supposed to be ongoing, because nothing else no, came out, but nothing else came out, as far as I know, there wasn't ever Pretty Deadly 6. And nobody was asking for it either, so I don't yeah. know, it's just, I, I make it the decision great. to go back for the trades when I'm ambivalent, well, like, when de- I have a reason to be sort it, of like, do, I lo- sort of liked it, but not enough. Well, if nothing else, Pretty Deadly was a great showcase for the new Amorius. Yes. Emma because was, Amorius, you know, started high, and, yeah, and Pretty she, Deadly, she was blown out Jage Williams free level. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Plan, I mean, Valentin Delandro isn't on that level, and I wouldn't come back for the art, and I don't know that I would come back for... What turns out to be Kamua's story, because I don't know anything about Kamua, right. and I don't feel the need to come back for it. Okay. So trade that's review. The trade review, and we picked another boom one. Yeah. <laughs> we were picking. We 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 talked about a lot of projects, and it turned out all of them were boom. Maybe we should do Lumberjanes. Oh, it's boom again. And then, well, we should do this. It's boom again. Boom. I mean, listen. Boom is doing. Where it's due. Yeah, boom has been doing really great this yeah. year. Lumberjanes, Superbia, Midas Slush. They are putting out books. Mimetic, uh, uh, James Tinian's Mimetic. The Adventure Time it's series, Bravest uh, Warriors. The Woods is theirs too, right? Yeah, yeah. We talked about the left. Yeah, left they're episode. doing a lot of really interesting self-contained projects. Yeah. Like these are not fictional universes. They're self-contained. Yeah. You know, stories, and they're great. Okay, so that's Midas Flash, yes, uh, Flash. collecting the eight-issue miniseries, written by Ryan North, with illustrations by Shelley Perline and Brandon Lamb. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it's a strange years to describe, because I'm not sure what can we say without spoiling parts of it. I think we are going to have to spoil... Well, the first issue, because... Uh, well, okay. It start, we start off... We with, start with the crew of Rebels, right? We have Joey... No, no, we start off with King Midas. No, the first, okay. uh, the first three pages... So here's where the, <laughs> the confusion sets in. There are basically two parallel stories. We have Joey Cooper and Fatima, who are a crew of uh, rebels struggling against this oppressive... The evil empire. The Federation. Uh, the Not, well, not the to be confused with the Star Trek Federation. Yeah. Well, it's basically the Star Trek Federation portrayed as the evil empire from right. Star Wars. Which because, is an interesting Because they have this, seeds. we're all, you know, peaceful bureaucrats, and we're only doing this for your own good. Right. No, it's the, the alliance from, it's the alliance from Serenity. 
Yeah. It's the Alliance for Surrender. There you That's go. what it was. There you go. Yeah. And and these uh, uh, three, this small crew comes to Earth. Except that Earth is solid gold because... And they don't have any connection to the idea of Earth, you know... Two of them are it's human, just a planet. Two of them are human looking. One of them is a dinosaur mm-hmm. because it's right north. So Why one not? of them would no because it's right north. <laughs> yeah. One of them would be a dinosaur. Yeah, and they're not you know as far as we know descendant from some they long lost continent. Yeah, well we'll we'll reach to that. Yeah, and there is this planet apparently called Earth, mm-hmm. which was erased from all records, and the reason it's made out of pure gold. And why is it made out of pure gold? Because at the Midas. Same, yes, King Midas from the Greek myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, in this version of the myth, his idea of if anything I'll touch turns into gold went a bit extreme because everything he touched included the planet Earth. Yeah. And everything that planet Earth touched. The air that he breathes turns to gold flecks in his lungs. Anything that touches the ground that he is standing on turns to gold. Basically, it's like this shockwave of... of He's a huge planetary level living weapon. Only yeah. he's dead. Exactly. And the crew have... Uh, Joey and her crew have arrived uh, on Earth in order to investigate this rumor of, you know, the, the solid gold planet. And what they find is that Midas's body is preserved and contact with it or any part of it will cause the target to turn into gold, basically. And their plan is to use Midas as a science fiction super weapon. And I just thought that was brilliant. It's a very good series. It's a very odd series because it starts off in one direction, yeah, turns into another, and then towards the end becomes Grant Morrison-esque. Well, almost. So, in, so its, in its cosmic... Uh, yeah, wild, I, I had some very mixed feelings about, about that, the because the, like, out of the eight issues, the first seven are this constant escalation of, uh, so, so the, the crew of the Prospect, like these rebels, are struggling against a Federation ship that is also trying to steal uh, uh, pieces of Midas' corpse in order to use it as a weapon, and they're constantly like one-upping each other. And, and importantly... There isn't, there is a black and white, but there's a lot of shades of gray because it's acknowledged. What we're going to do here, we're going to use this weapon, us the reb, the good rebels, mm-hmm. against a planet. Yeah. Against a medical ship full of people at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing awful things. Yeah. Because the people we're fighting are more awful, and even the evil emperor has some good people in it. True. It's, and, it's the use of, no- of a super weapon that does not discriminate between good and evil. So, at some point, Joey says, you know, we, our mission is either to secure this weapon or to make sure that they can't use it. Because once it's out there... And Fatima, her second officer, yeah. she basically says, no, we're not, al- they're not allowed to use it. We're not allowed to use it. It's too big for anyone to handle. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be the bad guys once we even touch that thing. And in fact, we see that for all that Fatima comes off as sort of unsympathetic towards the end because she keeps making the same mistake over and over again, but she's not wrong yeah. because the the escalation and the, the, the way that the pace keeps picking up faster and faster and faster and faster until you actually have like pieces of Midas being used on warheads and, and, and just like blood and, 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 and gold everywhere. And I think one of the reasons that I wasn't prepared for that is that Caroline's style is very... It's not, you know, Boom doesn't have an house style, but Kaboom, their kid's uh, line, sort of has this cartoonier, Cartoon. lighter lighter feel. And Cooper, she, especially. Is, yeah. You know, for all that he's a dinosaur, he's sort of this cartoonish little raptor. Yeah. You know, he wears little glasses. and So when cute. I see that, I think, oh, it's cute, it's fun. And then the series goes 
dark and yeah. dark. It's, it goes dark in what happens, but never in the actual line. If it was an image series with an image artist, I would be, oh yeah, that's perfectly fine for an image series, but when it comes from Boomer, I'm like, oh my god. You don't expect it. Yes. What, what, what are all, all these shades of gray? What's all this dark? Did they just destroy a whole planet? Not, I mean, the, the artwork, for all that it's cartoonish, when it tries to sell the horror of, you know, uh, body parts turning to gold or like a mother and daughter like suddenly freezing in the middle of nothing, it's, it's powerful. Because it's so clear and so light, you're not expected. Again, it's the adventure time thing of, because the show was so light and fluffy in its design, they were allowed to do things in that show that mm-hmm. no, cartoon could do if it was ever quasi-realistic. When when they did, I remember when, when Adventure Time did the episode uh, Remember Me, in which you find out that the Ice King is basically like Marceline's foster father with, with Alzheimer's, people were like bursting into tears at the end of it because you don't expect Adventure Time, of all things, to do a metaphor for like, you know, the parent that doesn't remember you anymore. It or, was heartbreaking. Yeah, or even Batman the Brave and the Bold cartoon, which was much lighter than the other Batman cartoons, mm-hmm. because it was so light in its presentation, could do in its actual plots things that were darker. You know, people die in that show all the time. And yeah. the show where Bruce Wayne confronted the murder of his parents and was responsible quasi to his death, you know, you wouldn't allow to do that in Batman the Animated Series because it was so realistic. Yeah. So, okay, that's... So, so far, so really, like, we have the seven-issue escalation, and really, I mean, I have to give Ryan North credit. The the way in which the situation keeps getting more and more frantic, but it always makes sense. Like, there's never an artificial jump in tension. Everything the characters do, even if it's stupid, it's stupid within the character's parameters. Mm -hmm. We know, you know, like you said, Fatima does a lot of things that are retroactive retroactively a mistake, but we know why she's making them. Yeah. Her explanation and her character give it a reason. Mm-hmm. And so and does Joy. What, what it reminded me of, I don't know if you're familiar with the anime series uh, Gundam Double Zero. I know Gundam in general. I haven't watched Gundam. I, I haven't watched any other version, just like the Double Zero version. But what I loved about that show was really the same sense of, you know, so there's these two ships, and one of them is terribly damaged, and the crew jumps over to the other ship, and then this situation, like, the situation keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse, but there's always a sense that the next thing is coming. So that was great. But then... So we get to the last issue. We can't. Well, no, we're not. Gonna I'm not going to spoil it, but it I just am going goes to say very weird. It is weird. It's a creative decision that doesn't make sense to me. Well, it's hard because what happens is that. Okay, so without spoiling the specifics, I will say that the last issue involves the return of a character who had not been seen since the first issue and who didn't factor into the plot at all. They just pop up. And then it turns into this issue-long dialogue, like it's a conversation, between Joey's uh, crew and this character, who hasn't factored into the plot. And it's weirdly nihilistic. It's like the last book of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where, you know, there's turns going (sighs) from nowhere. And it's not bad. It's very interesting on its own, but it's almost interesting. It's not bad, it's bizarre. I think it's almost interesting as a separate thing. Yeah. Like, if this had happened... It reads like, well, <laughs> I don't even know how to... Like I said, it's Grant Morrison, or even it's Jodorowsky. Have you read The Income? No. It's almost like The End of The Income. Where, you know, there's this big space opera thing, and then towards the end, whoop, we're in a different metaphysical genre altogether. Yeah, it, it's... 
And it's you can't even say that it's foreshadowed because well, it is not it's really. Very, no, it's very slightly. And then you know, if you know a bit about the Greek myth, uh, the name of the character that's coming back that's mentioned is like is a flashing sign that that's there's fine. something to him. No, but the the, the issue. I mean, okay, the, 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 the way that Brian North portrays the Midas uh, myth is accurate. It yeah. is. It does happen that way, like in the myth that's well more extreme. No, uh, well. More extreme in the sense that the consequences of Midas's wish are more uh, uh, are larger than he thought. But in terms of how the myth comes, like how he gains his power, that's pretty much what happens. Yeah. Dionysius and, and, and all of that. So, the, the, I think the problem that I had was, the excuse why did this character only came back now when doesn't convince. Are, yeah, because, not only that though. It's like I, because what happens is you have Midas as sort of the the initial, you know, setup. It's the premise. But the myth itself doesn't play into anything that happens afterwards. It's like, okay, they don't, in fact, Joey, neither the Rebels nor the Federation know why Midas can turn these things to gold. He just can. They see him as a super weapon. They see him as something that they can use. It doesn't matter to them how he can do these things. They're more concerned with figuring out how to weaponize and I'm it. not sure if, it, if the writer convinced me enough that it matters to me, because the last issue is all about Returning back to the Midas thing and trying to recontextualize that, yeah, as part of as part of a bigger discussion about you know morality and life, and the and the nature of the universe. And I'm like, that's a bit too big for what you're doing right now. Yeah, I, I respect the ambition, and I respect, if nothing else, Ryan North's storytelling chops, which are yeah. amazing. Yes, you know? they are. Well, I, again, like I, you know, when it, when I on my first reading, my instinct was to recommend against this book because the ending is so jarring that I I, I just didn't get it. And in fact, there's a scene there where, I mean, like I said, it's super nihilistic and super depressing, but there's a scene there where Joey says, okay, everything may be screwed, but we're going to try and do this. That seems like a more interesting uh, 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 scenario for, for a follow-through than what actually happens. And... It, like, my first instinct was sort of to recoil, because it's so disconnected. But then I, I sat down and I reread it again, and it's like, okay, I see what Ryan North is trying to do. I understand what he's trying to do. I still don't think that it's... It was the thing to do. It it, it still doesn't click, but I'm, I can be okay with it. And to be completely honest, for all that endings can have a huge impact on the way you view a story... I feel like there's enough here to say, you know, even taking into account the problematic ending, it's still worth reading. Yes. For me, like, the first seven issues are five stars all yeah. the way through. The last issue is three stars, yeah. and it drags it down, so I'm like, it's a four-star series, which yeah. is very good. Which is very good. If, uh, if we're using Goodreads rating, which... Is Especially for Boom, I mean... Well, no, like we said, because we can't... This, by the end of this year, I'm like, I think Boom is my favorite publisher... Because Image, everything that I like from Image this year is stuff that's already been right. in progress. There are new launches, some of them were good, some of them weren't so good, but none of them amazed me. So everything that I like from Image right now is stuff that, I'm, that I've been liking for the last two, three years. Well, you know, zero is last year, and Red, Red Queens? No, Red Queens is this year. Okay, Red Queens is the uh, Chew is a few years ago, mm-hmm. Manhattan Projects, which I like you don't, is yeah. also a few years old by oh, now. Absolutely. I mean, really, like and, all of the... the and Boom right. is, you know, just... Launching one interesting thing after another. We haven't talked about Capture Creatures, for instance, which came out two weeks ago, which was very good. Which was this? Capture Creatures by Boom, which is basically Boom's version of Pokemon. Oh, God. Which is 
Pokemon with an Adventure Time styling, I think, or Mega Man styling for some reason. Oh my it's, goodness! It's, and it's beautiful. Again, I'll look that up. Uh, Boom has this distinct cartoony style, which they enforce, but only as a general line. You know, you have to be light and you have to be clear. Sure. You when you look re- at something like Lumberjanes, you know, it is very much cartoony, but yeah, it's di- there, but there's different types of cartooning. Yeah. Lumberjanes isn't like Midas Flash, which isn't yeah. like Capture Creatures, which isn't like Adventure Time. The the main rule I think they have is you have to be appealing to children. Oh, not only not, <laughs> not not only to children, but the line has to be something that the kid looks at and says, "Ooh, pretty," which is fine. And you have to be clear. There is never a case of boom where I'm reading something and I'm saying the artist is trying something too big for his breeches. You right. know, he's trying to be too sophisticated and he lost the plot completely. Which happens with image because there sure. the artist can do whatever they want most of the time. So you have a lot of stuff like Clo, where you know the artist is like, "I'm gonna do this super complicated heavy thing," right. and you end up bringing it. Okay, it's very nice looking. I have no idea. You know what? We never talked about it, but Boom would never release something like Intersect. No, Boom wouldn't no, release something. Have done that in Boom, a million years. Well, and I, when I, I question whether "quote unquote" kid friendliness is the issue because I'm thinking it's the here. Boom line. Well, yes, but the boom line includes superbia, superbia which is and, not for children. And Mimetic, suicide, suicide risk. Yeah, the woods, it. suicide risk. Um, Lumberjanes is appealing to children, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but my, Lum- I would never give. My and you know what? To as long as we're, I don't think we're going to talk about Lumberjanes trade anytime Probably soon. Probably not. But Lumberjanes had the same problem with this one, which the final issue of it's it's an ongoing now, but the final issue of the mini first arc, you right, know, the, the first issue, arc. was also a bit of a what? what? Where did this came from? Yeah, it, it does. That I think might be part of it's, the quintessential difference between Image and Boom, because you're right that on the one hand, Boom would never have published Intersect, but on the other hand, I don't think that they could do something like Saga, which has a tight structure, and you know you can't suddenly do something that has nothing to do with anything, and it's just sort of like the last issue swerve for no reason. I don't think that they could do that because they, they again, like I, I respect the ambition because really, like, kudos to Ryan North for taking the series in a direction that I can honestly say I would not have seen it coming. What happened in the last issue? I don't know if that's a good thing or not, <laughs> but I can say, like, you know, it definitely surprised kudos me. Kudos for Ryan North in general. Yeah. This guy became, you know, from the guy who does the funny webcomic about a dinosaur to... Yeah. For me, one Although, of the most respected writers. It has to be said that this series does have, like, Adventure Time-style dialogue. Like, there's a quote... Uh, I'm just going to quote... Dudes, for- dudes! <laughs> no, no, I'm quoting Fatima from the first issue. Okay, creepy death satellites, we're ready for your peaceful greeting. We're all one big happy family. And, and Cooper has, like, these very Finn and Jake, like, uh, expressions. And sometimes it doesn't seem to match the tone yeah, like, of the story. Like you said, it's, it's not a tone clash, it's sort of an... Unexpected tone. Yeah, it's it's a weird, it's a weird decision. The characters keep being positive toward you know horrible yeah, things, like really horrible things. You know, horrible things keep happening and happening. They're like, okay, how can we fix this? And I'm like, wow, you're made of stern stuff, lady. And really, for all that, it's supposedly like uh, it's a minor inconsistency in the tone. But you also have to give them respect for being optimistic in the first yeah. place because. It, How often does that yeah, happen? Yeah, it would have been easy to uh, to become an anguish Great celebration. Bear. Yeah, and it's not. It's it's a good. Somebody loses an arm at some point, and it's not treated as like you know. I must now. It's not our. Oh, you remember Arsenal? 
when he lost his arm and he started using cats as nunchucks <laughs> and hallucinating that his his daughter who had died was like you know there was some that was that was either J T. Krull or James was, Robinson. It was James Robinson made him losing arm. J T. Krull doing the cat ninja. The cat ninja. Uh, so I mean, it it could have. Been, I mean, just look at like the contrast yeah. between. These two people lose their arms, and you cannot find two more different approaches to what they decide to do afterwards. Though and Ryan it's North, fantastic. Though Ryan North writing Arsenal Cat Fighter would have been... <laughs> it would have been fun! I would have read Ryan North's Arsenal Dead Cat, cat Nunchucks. Sure, why not? <laughs> I'm Cat Nunchucks. <laughs> they're scratching at you as they're flying through the air. I, okay. I, I recommend the, Mind, the Midas Flesh. Okay. I think it was... It's a great read... Problematic ending notwithstanding, uh, you can be okay with it in the end, I think. Yeah, I I recommend it. You know, I think the ending isn't as problematic as you say, and I love it overall, so go ahead, give it a read if you haven't tried it already. Well done, Ryan North. And well done, Boom. Yeah, so that's the end of this episode, Mm -hmm. and next episode, it's the end of the year. Join us next time for our end of the year podcast. We're going to do our new annual awards, which we haven't named yet. The Smorgasbord Annual Number One. (laughs) We haven't gotten to 12 issues yet, but we're still number one. The Smogies. Yeah, the Smogies. <laughs> no, that sounds very rude. So for Saquart and for the Smorgasbord, I'm Sean Edry. And I'm Tom Shapira. Bon appetit. <laughs>